what? And you've got nobody to blame but yourself. Holiday, this other girl. That's part of it, too. But you've got it all wrong. You don't know the whole story. I was going to surprise you. I was just over talking to her father. Her father wants me to handle all the money for her. You realize what that can mean? You started here with a lie. You're going to end here with a lie. That's Thompson's chauffeur. He drove me over here. They want me to spend the night at the house and sign the papers in the morning. Let him in. The room's too full as it is. No, Holiday, don't do anything you'll be sorry for. Tomorrow, everything will be different. We'll be rich. All I've got to do is say yes to Thompson tomorrow. One little word and we'll have millions. You only said one true thing in your life. And that's when you said you were going away tonight. And you are. Three miles out of town and six feet down. All alone. With nobody to lie to. And you can kiss tomorrow goodbye. But now, Holiday, listen. You should have killed my brother. You're listening to episode 88 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Barbara Payton had nerves of steel at the start of her career. She would try any gimmick to stand out during an audition. She kept her poise during a tabloid feeding frenzy. She was a sexual libertine, enjoying affairs with men and women. She was generous to a fault, giving away gowns, shoes, and gems whenever another dame had a big event. She loaned money time and again that was never returned. But what's often overlooked when people talk about Barbara is how she stood her ground against the wolves in Hollywood. Often she put them on notice, and sometimes she engineered their comeuppance. In her book, I Am Not Ashamed, published in 1963, she shares a revenge tale that is a unique uh, addition to the genre of star autobiographies. The story could be a companion piece to the Scum Manifesto by Valerie Solanas. For Barbara, it's not polemic, it's playbook. Barbara Payton recalls a time when a well-known producer invited her to audition. She agreed to read for him in his home office. From conversations with other starlets, she knew that he had been pulling the same trick on women for 20 years in Hollywood. If you listen to my episode on Geraldine Fitzgerald, you can probably guess whose name immediately came to my mind. Barbara's memoir is full of blind items. Trying to figure out the names behind the stories is part of the fun. The producer's auditions always followed the same pattern. He used sexually explicit scenarios. The way Barbara tells it, the producer handed script pages to a young hopeful that were nothing but prompts for sex. One scene was about a GI home for only an hour leave. He finds his wife in the shower and then action. There was one about a nurse who tried to seduce a drunken playboy. The scene that the producer wanted Barbara to read for was she was in the part of a Martian newly landed on Earth. The producer was supposed to play a scientist who had to examine Martian Barbara and then demonstrate how they made babies on Earth. Once he handed over the pages, Barbara stripped off her clothes. She downed the drink he gave her and then asked, mind if I rewrite the scene a little bit? 
The producer could barely reply. He was so overcome with the horn, thinking his dreams had come true. But that's not what Barbara had in mind exactly. Before she left his home office, the producer was naked, tied up, face down, on a chaise lounge. Barbara had found a pogo stick behind his bar. She proceeded to beat him with a pogo stick over and over until his back and ass were covered in red welts. All the while, the producer screamed. She wondered how he would explain the red marks to his wife that evening. I wonder if the welts on his back matched the number of notches on his belt. Barbara Payton had been fighting off men since she was at least 10 years old. She hated bullies and men who got away with using women. Along the way, she figured out a way to get to the top of a highly competitive field. And I'm always drawn to how women get to the top rather than what happens on the way down. If you want the grisly details about Barbara's addiction and her slide down, you can find that somewhere else. Barbara's troubles with the opposite sex began when she was 10 years old and a boy expected to cop a feel for the price of a cinema ticket. After she refused him, the boy told Barbara that there was a name for girls like her, teasers. The prospect of not being taken to the cinema again when she couldn't afford to pay for her own ticket was too grim, and so she took his hand and placed it under his sh- her shirt for a few seconds. Another time at the cinema, James Cagney, one of her favorite stars, was appearing. It was a charity fundraiser, and tickets sold for $1.25, way out of the price range of the boys she knew. Barbara waited outside, hoping to get in. Finally, an older boy, around 16, offered her an extra ticket. He, too, expected something in return. At 13, Barbara auditioned for a school play. She won the role of the wife by kissing the older boy cast to play the husband on the lips rather than the cheek, as was noted in the script. When the play finished, she wanted the local playwright, who was in his 50s, to write a good part for her in his next play. After they met, he proposed to Barbara. When Barbara was 15 years old, she thought she was in love with the friend's father. He was a 45-year-old architect. The architect pulled Barbara into the bathroom during his um, birthday party. He pounced on the teenager. Soon, he was waiting for Barbara each day after school. He then asked his wife for a divorce, telling her he was in love with another woman. Her friend reported this, not knowing that Barbara was the other woman. Barbara went to his office and ended things. His wife took him back. At 17, Barbara married John Payton, an Air Force captain. When he asked her where she wanted to honeymoon, Barbara chose Hollywood. During their hotel stay, she chatted with a bellboy who told her about an RKO executive who was registered in the hotel. Barbara met with a man from RKO. He was a casting director, and he arranged for a screen test in the studio. She studied the lines and practiced. The morning of the test, she was so sick, she vomited, and it didn't go away during the audition. 
the studio nurse told Barbara she was pregnant. The couple settled in Compton. John Payton went to, the, to USC on the GI Bill. Barbara wanted her baby, her son Johnny, but she never abandoned her dream for a career. She left Johnny with the neighbors while she pursued work as a model. In 1946, Barbara hired a photographer to take pictures for a portfolio. A clothing company, Saba of California, saw the photographs and hired Barbara as a spokesmodel for their new juniors line. From there, Barbara signed with the agent, Rita Leroy, who was a former actress representing models and showgirls. Barbara did a series of ads for Studebaker. Next, Barbara auditioned for a review in the popular nightclub, nightclub Slapsy Maxies. She signed for $100 a week to do two shows six nights a week. The mogul from Universal, William Getz, caught Barbara in the show and signed her to the studio for $100 a week in January 1949. She was immediately put into acting lessons with Universal's drama coach, Sophie Rosenstein. Barbara was in good company with the upcoming stars such as Shelley Winters, Tony Curtis, and Rock Hudson. Donna Martell became one of Barbara's closest friends in the studio. Universal cast Barbara in pictures next to Singing Cowboys and gave her a bit part playing a nightclub photographer in Once More My Darling, which starred Anne Blythe and Robert Montgomery. If Barbara thought she knew how to handle wolves, wolves, she would soon learn that men in the nightclub circuit were nothing compared to the alpha wolves in the studio system. In no time, she received a series of gifts from George Raft, roses, champagne, silk stockings, clothes, and jewels. Then the headcount of men who courted Barbara grew to include John Arland, Ralph Meeker, serial philanderer Greg Baltzer. She dated Clark Gable, Errol Flynn, and had flings with Gary Cooper and Steve Conkren, among others. Barbara hung out in the nightclubs like Ciro's and Macombo. She wanted to meet everyone and took an interest. Steve Hayes, who is an up-and-coming young actor, who parked cars until his big break, noted that Barbara remembered him after the first time they met when he parked cars at Ciro's. Later, when she saw him working as a valet outside the Blue Room and joked with him, the club owner, Preston Sturgis, noticed and said something about the two having dated before. Barbara cracked wise. Are you kidding? I never date guys who are prettier than me. She was quick-witted, which always seems to take men by surprise when it comes from a beautiful woman. Barbara worked hard in the studio. Nightclubs were an extracurricular sport. She took dance, acting, and voice lessons. After she was cast and trapped in her first starring role in 1949, the director, Richard Fleischer, recalls that Barbara put in 15-hour days to meet the production schedule and never complained about the overtime. Fleischer praised her talent and work ethic. What stands out about Barbara in the picture is the way she moves on camera. Playing a gangster's mall turned cigarette girl, Barbara wears a short tutu skirt to work in the nightclubs. She pivots around like she could drop the cigarette tray and join a company on stage for Swan Lake. 
Barbara Payton moves like a ballerina, as though she's always stood next to a barre in first position. Evidence of Barbara's graceful posture is captured in photographs from the time she was a teenager in Odessa, Texas, which are uh, compiled in John O'Dowd's great book, The Visual uh, Pictorial of Her Life. In candid shots, she poses with a pointed toe, a turned out ankle, a wrist bent just so, or her fingers artfully composed, which shows she's completely aware of her body and how to control it. Barbara's deliberate poses develop further in her work modeling for the dressmaker Saba. She looks like she's ready for the cover of Vogue. The way that Barbara moves and trapped reminds me of Linda Darnell and the poise she demonstrated in front of a camera when she was only 16 and starring in her first picture, Hotel for Women in 1939. Barbara was alert to the ulterior motives of men. At the same time, she flirted and enjoyed having flings with them. She didn't attach shame to her sexuality. If she wanted to go to bed with a man, she did. But if she thought he was using her, or worst of all, feeding her a lie with a marriage proposal just to get her to have sex, she made it her mission in life to get back at him. Barbara tells a story in her memoir of going out with one man who later became a big star. He went on and on about how he wanted to marry her. She smelled something fishy, so she decided to press him on it. Let's get married today, she said, tonight, or else this weekend. Excuses from him followed, but he wanted to take her to a little out-of-the-way spot first, where they could talk. The man continued to use the marriage ploy in an attempt to get into her pants. Barbara refused him. When his mask finally fell away, the way she describes the scene reminds me of stories about the male star who died last year. When she wouldn't give in to his seduction, he asked who she thought she was to say no to him. Barbara shot back, who do I have to be to say no to you, a lying weasel, a raper of young girls? I'd rather be dead than have you touch me. He replied, maybe you will be. Barbara picked up a bottle and promised to defend herself. He drove her home instead of testing her. Dealing with men in Hollywood became dangerous both physically and psychologically, as well as threatening her career prospects. On a publicity tour in Texas to promote Trapped, she met Bob Hope. Hours after they met, they were back in the hotel room tearing each other's clothes off. To please him, she joined Hope on his tour, neglecting her own career and duties in the studio. Hope set her up in an apartment in Hollywood. Their affair was an open secret in the film colony. Barbara had trouble paying her bills, but Hope was cheap. She noted that she never got more than $100 out of him at any one time. She tried saying no to him whenever he asked for anything. And when he objected, Barbara opened her sass mouth and told the biggest star in Universal, you pay your people plenty just to say yes to you. At the rates I'm getting, I'm saying no. The 46-year-old married star ended the affair and paid her some hush money. 
but not before Barbara lost her contract with Universal. Rufus Lemaire, the casting director in the studio, told her they were invoking the morals clause. In a story as old as dirt, the woman was held accountable and paid the price for a man's sexual dalliance. Bob Hope's career and reputation continued without blemish or interruption. Barbara wrote in her memoir, A woman is like an iceberg. Only a facade shows. The rest is hidden, and it takes months, if not years, to find out the mysteries of what's underneath. Did men really care about her, or did they only want her for sex? Barbara learned quickly that men held a facade that was difficult to decipher. Janice Redfield, married to Barbara's brother Frank, noted, Barb was usually very loving and very giving too, but she definitely had a tough side. She saw herself on the same playing field as any man. And if they mistreated her, well, she definitely wasn't going to take it lying down. In 1956, Barbara had her revenge on Bob Hope when she spilled details about their affair to Confidential Magazine. She needed the money, but she probably enjoyed selling the secrets to get back at him. Barbara's revenge on Universal Studio came much sooner. Only a few months after they terminated her contract, Universal invited her back to the studio. Barbara was so hot after the premiere of Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye in 1950 that the studio wanted her to do a picture with Donald O'Connor. Barbara had agreed to meet with the picture's director, Arthur Lubin. Before the meeting with Lubin, Barbara arranged to have lunch with her friend Bob Rains in Universal's commissary. Bob was an assistant in the casting office. While she played catch-up with Bob Rains, big wigs from the front office just so happened to walk by to say hello. Head of the studio, Bill Getz, sat down and said how great she looked. Then Rufus Lemaire came by and sat down for a chat. After the studio executives left and they were alone, Bob Rains said he was astounded that Barbara could smile and be so nice to the men who had just tossed her out of the studio only a few months ago. Barbara laughed. Bob hadn't spent those long hours in acting classes with Sophie Rosenstein like she had. She had no intention of doing the picture. She just wanted to see how phony the men would be about the whole thing. Before she left the lot, Barbara rang Arthur Lubin's office. She wasn't feeling well and would have to cancel their meeting. Barbara had the last word. In her memoir, Barbara admits that she learned from a madam in Glendale that the Cagney brothers were looking to cast the love interest in a new picture. Barbara had explained in her tell-all that you had to have a gimmick to stand out in an audition. Looks or talent weren't enough. Sometimes you could do it with clothes or makeup, such as odd combinations or crazy colors, but most often it had to be something you did to stand out. Once she had a friend drop her off by helicopter when she auditioned for the role of an air stewardess. As Barbara remembers it, when she turned up for the audition in Cagney Productions, there were a dozen other women there as her competition. 
It was a hot day, and the other women looked cool and composed. Barbara had been running late, which made her damp and flustered. She decided to exaggerate her lack of composure to stand out from the quiet crowd. She walked into the interview office, sat down, kicked off her shoes, and fanned her legs with the hem of her dress while she tossed off a few salty comments about the heat. She felt like it worked and that the other girls went home. Barbara signed for $5,000 a week. Barbara's contract was with Bill Cagney as the producer. James Cagney and his brother Bill formed Cagney Productions in 1943 after Jimmy's Oscar win and his contract expired with Warner's. During his tenure in the studio, Jimmy was frequently at odds with Jack Warner. He was known around the studio for reading law books in his dressing room between scenes. Cagney was adamant that Warner Brothers should pay him what he was worth and that he gave nothing more than what was stipulated in his contract. Bill had been his manager for years. But of the four pictures Cagney Productions made in the 1940s, only one was a hit. The Cagney brothers were up to their ears in debt. To help with their losses, they went back to Warner's to get financing for Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, based on a novel by Horace McCoy. Warner Brothers guaranteed the first half million of box office returns to the bankers. Jim Cagney had caught Barbara's performance, entrapped with Lloyd Bridges, and wanted her for the role of Holiday. Barbara's dramatic entrance in their production office, fanning herself shoes off, didn't hurt. Unfortunately, Barbara's contract was conditional. It wasn't enough that she was talented and beautiful and perfect for the role. Bill Cagney used his position and added a sexual dynamic in tandem with a professional arrangement. While on contract in Warner's, Virginia Mayo said it was common knowledge in the studio that Bill and Barbara were having an affair. Jimmy Cagney didn't approve, but not enough to stop his brother from taking advantage of a young actress looking for a break. In Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, James Cagney and Barbara Payton play characters who are so complimentary. They are bound in such a way that the fatalistic noir trajectory plays out like one long cigarette before the firing squad. Cagney's Ralph Cotter needs Barbara Payton's Holiday Carlton to greenlight his tough guy reputation. A jailbreak is one thing. So is swindling small-town hoodlums and corrupt cops. What really makes him a potent strongman is Holiday as his mall. Without her, his character would have been far less believable. In order to convince an audience that he's still tough, still man enough, still the same old Tom Powers who had the rackets all sewn up as a bootlegger 20 years ago in The Public Enemy, he needs a smoking hot blonde. Holiday helps Ralph break out of a chain gang because she wants to help free her brother who's unjustly railroaded. Holiday is earnest about doing the wrong thing if it serves a greater good. She believes in her brother, and when he's killed in the jailbreak, she doesn't yet know that Ralph Cotter is the one who shot him. 
It's not long before the story teases out the effect that toxic men have on women like Holiday. Ralph Cotter looks her up after the jailbreak and does everything but pee in the corner to mark his territory. He struts about the place. He says he's moving into her place, and before she can get rid of Ralph, he tells her, and pardon me while I scream, he tells her to make him a sandwich. In our current idiom, make me a sandwich is part of belittling women, of putting a woman in her place. It has the same exact meaning here in the picture. When Holiday obliges and starts to make the sandwich, Ralph sits down in a chair and picks up the paper like he owns the place. There's a strong visual cue of a man staring at a paper. He's closed off, shut down, no eye contact with the woman who's waiting on him. He's the important one. You're the servant. He doesn't make small talk or ask Holiday anything about herself. Instead, he tells Holiday that she's a fugitive from justice, that there are thousands of cops who would like to lock her up and throw away the key. Holiday insists that her brother was innocent and that it killed her to see him waste away in prison each time she visited. She had to break him out. Ralph Cotter laughs in her face, interrupts her, and then insists her brother was guilty, which makes Holiday's noble gesture to break him out a fool's errand. Finally, tired of his dismissive macho routine, Holiday reacts, but she doesn't cry. She throws a carving knife at his head. The knife hits Cagney behind his ear, drawing blood. Even though there's only a small amount of blood, viewers know that his reaction will be a tenfold playback. Cagney goes into the bathroom and puts a towel under the taps. He wipes away the blood, and then he launches into a vicious attack, beating Barbara with a heavy, wet towel. She begs him to stop. She's so alone, all alone. The rictus grin that curdles across Cagney's face is horrifying. He won. Her submission, her plea for mercy, is what sadists like Ralph Cotter dream of. It makes the grapefruit in May Clark's face look like a valentine by comparison. Cagney's violence against Barbara is sickening to watch, especially because Barbara looks like the love child he could have had with Gene Harlow when he played Tom Powers. But Cagney doesn't play Ralph Cotter like a romantic hero or a swoon merchant. He is blatantly amoral. Ralph has a score to settle with everyone. He swore about his time and stir. He's going to make everyone pay for his lonely nights. He makes men pay at the end of the stick or an elaborate extortion racket and women with threats and a wet towel. The rest of the picture revolves around sound technology that was a popular plot device at the time, such as in Otto Preminger's Whirlpool. Uh, from 1950, and from Nightmare Alley, released in 1947. Cotter wires Holiday's flat with microphones and has one of his flunkies make a recording of a conversation with a cop who's a, um, you know, a, a corrupt detective that he can use to bury his identity as a fugitive on the run. 
Cotter hires an attorney, played by Luther Adler, who's well-versed in skirting the letter of the law. As the double-crossing develops, Ralph adds Holiday to the list. He starts running around with a society dame who gets her thrills on the down low with gangsters like Ralph. Helena Carter plays the socialite who drives fast as some kind of metaphor for her easy virtue. In a scene that mirrors the first time Ralph came to her flat, he returns one morning to find Holiday using the kitchen as a battleground. She's once again in the middle of a domestic routine waiting on Ralph, with the table all set for breakfast, when the mood suddenly shifts from complacent to full-blown attack. Cagney starts out by acting the rooster in the henhouse, asking for his coffee and being the big man. Barbara Payton steals everything but the camera in the scene. When he asks for coffee, Barbara picks up a stainless steel pot and hurls it across the room, aiming for his head. Cagney ducks just in time. He goads her on. I like mine in a cup, he says. Barbara grabs one from the table and hurls it across the room. No cream, he asks. The jug of milk flies across the room. He wants the sugar. Barbara grips a hand over the sugar bowl like it were a baseball, and she was pitting a no-hitcher pitching a no-hitter. After she throws everything at Cagney except the kitchen table, the mood shifts at the same lightning speed as the breakfast dishes. He laughs. She laughs. She falls next to him on the couch. They've got this whole post-coital vibe, and all the tension has gone out of the room. But in case he missed the point of her pitching session, Barbara's face loses the smile and turns serious. She tells him one day he's going to get himself killed, not by a cop, by her. I'll put up with a lot from you, but not another woman. When Holiday Carlton makes good on her promise, it has a poetry to it that lifts Holiday above so many other noir dames who never seem to have rhyme or reason for filling a man full of lead. In his memoir, Cagney doesn't mention Barber's performance. He does note that he learned a fresh bit of business from Luther Adler, the man who plays the corrupt lawyer, Cherokee. Adler was a method man from the group theater in New York. Cagney notes that for one scene, Adler was sat behind a desk. He looks up at Cagney standing in front of him, but Adler didn't lift his eyes along with his head. He kept his lids down and only raised them slowly once his head was already raised to meet Cagney. Jim wrote that he had been around a long time and he never saw anything like that before. Adler created a look of pure menace. Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye was a big hit. The Cagney brothers paid off their backlog of debt. Barbara's stock in the film colony went sky high. Her salary in Warner's jumped to $10,000 a week. If only Barbara had taken heed from a picture that argues bad men ruin good women. While she was riding high, she met Francho Tone in a nightclub. Francho was 46 when they met. Barbara was 24. He was only a few years younger than her father. 
but Barber considered him a Hollywood A-lister, dignified and cultured. Later, she met Tom Neal, a muscle-bound B-movie actor who had a physique that Barber craved. Barber's love triangle with Franchot and Tom dominated newspapers and magazines in September 1951 when the men turned violent. Franchot's career had never recaptured the prestige he experienced in MGM in the 1930s once he left the studio. Although he worked in pictures, radio, and on the stage, he had also become a regular in Hollywood nightclubs, including Earl Carroll's burlesque club. In her memoir, Yvonne DiCarlo paints Franchot as a louche regular when she danced there. Franchot and Burgess Meredith often entertained the dancers after the show. One night, they sent a note to, to Yvonne and a friend, invited her to their table, signing it Doc Tone and Burgess the Creep Meredith. Yvonne preferred Tone and Meredith to other patrons like Errol Flynn and Bruce Cabot, who expected sex at the end of the night. But one night, Franchot tried to get Yvonne into bed. She asked him if he were proposing, because that's the only way she would go to bed with a man, if she were married. Franchot transferred his kisses to another woman's neck. Soon after, he married another Earl Carroll dancer, Jean Wallace. A middle-aged man chasing girls half his age undercuts his reputation for highbrow stage acting and society breeding. Barber's sister-in-law notes that Francho had very good manners, but that she never saw him without a drink in his hand. When he started seeing Barbara, he gave her the same stale line about how acting in the movies was inferior to the stage and how he wanted to do a play with her. Francho seems like one of those guys who builds his self-worth on feeling superior to his lover. Raised in wealth, privilege, and a top education, he was supposed to be destined for bigger things than playing a highbrow Ralph Bellamy type, the runner-up to bigger leading men like Clark Gable. After Barbara coasted along seeing both men, Francho cornered Barbara with a proposal and made an ultimatum about her sexual adventure with the likes of Tom Neal, whom Francho dismissed as an unemployed weightlifter. Deep in his cups, he told Barbara to get rid of the muscle man. After several drinks, Barbara agreed, and they returned to her place ready to break up with the B-movie actor. She asked Francho to make Tom leave. Francho, playing the big man, invited Tom to step outside. Dutch courage will only get you so far. Francho somehow thought it was a good idea to throw the first punch at a man bulging at the seams. Barbara noted to a friend that when Francho threw a punch, it was like throwing a pebble at an elephant. Tom hit back, a blow which sent Francho flying 12 feet, knocking him cold instantly. Tom Neal sat on top of the A-lister and reportedly punched him in the face 30 times. As a result, Francho had a broken nose, broken cheekbone, broken jaw. He was unconscious for 18 hours and had a massive concussion and was left with a blood clot that could have killed him. Emergency surgery to repair the battering was necessary. 
Afterwards, when Barbara visited Franchot in the hospital, she has a black eye visible and bruises all over her legs, evidence that she was also attacked by Tom Neal that night. In the press, Barbara took all the blame. Not Tone, the 46-year-old man who should have known better, or Tom Neal, the violent animal who nearly beat a man to death. With two men making claims on her, one Hollywood royalty and the other a sex machine he-man, she went back and forth. Five days after the brawl, Barbara was spotted out with Tom Neal in between furtive visits to Franchot in the hospital. She didn't like being told what to do, and she didn't want to choose between respectability and hot sex. In the end, she picked Franchot because she thought it was the right thing to do and it looked good. She notes that as soon as they were married, Francho became obsessed with her sexual history and refused to let it go. He went over and over the details. He acted haunted by her exes. She cried night and day and it still wasn't enough to placate him. She grew weary of the drama. One night shortly after their wedding, Francho took his new bride and his mother to Ciro's. Across the room, he noted gossip columnist Floribel Muir, who had printed salty comments about the brawl, along with many other writers in the film colony, such as Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons. Muir's account of what transpired in court documents is hair-raising. Floribel Muir was having dinner in Ciro's with her husband and an assistant. Francho approached, initially making some mundane chit-chat, and then very quickly turned volatile, raging about the column she had printed about him and Barbara. Tone said what she had printed had made him so angry he could spit in her face, and then he did. After he spit in her face, Francho grabbed Floribel's triple strand of pearls around her neck and twisted them, choking her. Underneath the table, he stomped on her foot and kicked her in the shin and ankles. Floribel's husband and, and the Ciro staff eventually intervened, saving her from a drunken Francho. Might I point out that the victim of Francho's attack was 62 years old? Floribel Muir left Ciro's and went straight to the police station to file charges. Immediately, the press coverage minimized the attack, focused on the spitting only, with articles that jokingly framed it as an unexpected expectoration rather than what he did by choking and stomping on an elderly woman. Francho spent one night in jail. Before his court appearance, men in the press greeted him with a chorus of, he's a jolly good fellow. Floribel Muir ran a column, which admitted she would have dropped the charges, but Francho Tone denied causing any painful injuries. He only copped to the spitting. The judge gave Francho a slap on the wrist. The ruling was a misdemeanor fine of $400. Once again, aberrant behavior from men is excused and overlooked while the woman takes all the blame. Francho walked away looking a hero, and he left Floribel to take the brunt as a bitch or a laughingstock. 
I tend to enjoy Franco Tone's performances on film, but in real life, he was an absolute stinker to women. When the inevitable bust-up came between the newlyweds, Franco did not take the high road. He hired a private detective to take photos of Barbara and Tom that he could use in the divorce trial. Not only did the private eye snap lurid shots of Barbara and Tom together, Franco was not satisfied with Accord victory. He wasn't content to divorce Barbara. He wanted to ruin her. Franco posted copies of the sexually explicit photos of Barbara going down on Tom to each studio so no one would hire her. He also sent copies of the photos to Barbara's brother, Frank. Jan, her sister-in-law, noted that the pictures came as a terrible shock. Frank burned them. In 1953, Michael Carreras, a British producer, offered Barbara a two-picture deal in London, which Barbara was delighted to accept. She looked forward to escaping the scrutiny of the Hollywood columnists and Franco's vendetta. In the first picture, Bad Blonde, also known as the Flanagan Boy, there's a lot of good stuff there. Barbara vamps it up as a blatant man trap who manipulates a prize fighter into killing her much older husband. It's like a more sexed up version of Lana Turner in The Postman Always Rings Twice. The downside, what really drags on the film, is the prize fighter absorbs too much screen time when he has no charisma outside the ring. Unfortunately, Tom Neal followed Barbara to London. Europe did, did not polish his edges. Instead, he abused Barbara while he also leached on her bank account. From the moment they met, she paid all of his bills. In an interview for British Film News, Barbara appeared with a cut over her eye. She observed, I don't know what it is that I've got that causes me so much trouble. Sometimes I wish I wasn't so lucky. Looking the way I do is a curse. Like many victims of abuse, Barbara internalized her attacker's point of view, believing she had caused it or brought it on herself. Barbara Payton was so much more than her demons. She was a lusty scamp who followed her own desires, just like many of her contemporaries, party girls like Lana Turner and Ava Gardner. If Barbara Payton had the support system of MGM, her story might have had a different ending. If she had a studio invested in developing her talent, plus a network of people like Eddie Mannix and Howard Strickling to bury scandal, as well as handlers that made sure she made it to the studio on time and didn't go overboard in the nightlife, she would have had a longer career. Bill Cagney and Jack Warner didn't care about Barbara, nor did they commit to making her a star. After less than two years, they jointly canceled her seven-year contract. They used her and then threw her away. At one point in Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, Holiday Carlton tells Ralph Cotter, If I'm bad, you made me that way. I can't help thinking how much this resonates in the context of Barbara's own life. The Hollywood predators told Barbara that she was only a blonde, just a body. And the natural rebel instinct she had morphed into self-destruction. She died at 39. 
Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. I Am Not Ashamed by Barbara Payton, published in 1963. Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye by John O'Dowd, published in 2006. Barbara Payton, A Life in Pictures by John O'Dowd, published in 2019. B-Movie, A Play and Two Acts by Michael Druxman from 2014. Cagney by Cagney with John McCabe and Jack Thomas, published in 1976. Yvonne, an autobiography of Yvonne DiCarlo, published in 1987. Join me next time for episode 89 when I talk about Grace Kelly and Rear Window from 1954. Thanks very much.